Okay, so, hi Troy. Hi Tara. <laughs> we should have an intro song. Yeah, we should. Yeah, what would that be, Troy? Star Wars. No, why would it be Star Wars? I have no idea. Because <laughs> that's the only song you could think of? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so, I thought that maybe, um, sometimes when I put stuff up about marriage and stuff, people often ask me about, like, conflict. And I think a lot of young people, well, I mean, I can only go by the little messages I get on Instagram and stuff, but... Um, it seems to me that a lot of people early in their marriages think that conflict is a sign of um, maybe a mismatch or that there's something wrong. Um, And when I think back throughout our marriage, like we didn't really have any tools for conflict, conflict resolution or Um, anything that really worked for us very effectively um, we kind of had to figure that out on our own so anyway I thought that it might be good for us to we could maybe just chat about that a little bit sort of and maybe the place to start is just um, maybe earlier on in our relationship maybe the dysfunction we had around conflict and then sort of maybe where we are now or I don't know, however you want to, that's where I'm going to pull you in and ask you, maybe like from your perspective when we were still young and without really any experience in how to resolve conflict in a healthy way, um, from my perspective, I think that you would often get kind of quiet and withdrawn and I would often just walk away and stop a conversation or argument or whatever and then our way of of coming back together was basically to just sweep it under the rug (laughs) and then until you know and everything we we'd make up and then of course the same thing kept coming around in different forms is that fair would you say that yeah I think so um that was a long time ago (laughs) I know (laughs) you don't Um, remember so trying to think back, I guess, the early days, um, I think a, a common tendency, if I remember right, for me was I think I wanted to keep the peace and to make sure that um, if we get did get into a conflict, that I think I felt I had to do whatever I could to try to make it right. And... I think from a man perspective, sometimes that meant being quiet, um, probably shutting down, removing myself from the conflicts, saying that you were right, and then going off and probably not truly feeling that way or having that resonate with me in terms of what I felt was right and true. Yeah, and I think <clears throat> I think from my perspective, like, that came across like I didn't feel like there was an actual genuine um meeting of the minds that was going to resolve anything I kind of it didn't it didn't really ring true for me when you would agree with me just to keep the peace like I could sense that that's what you were doing yeah and I think uh in the early days um I don't think I really knew your language or how 
we could both do that dance together in terms of satisfying and meeting both of our perspectives, meeting both of our needs and connecting on that higher level that allowed us to move forward in a constructive way. I think in the early days, I think we would clash and yeah, not come out of it moving forward but rather staying in the same place. Yeah, and just repeating it. Yeah, yeah, because I don't think there's any lessons that were learned. Um, Because it wasn't true, real, authentic conversation. I think, again, my folly was putting patches on without really addressing the real issue at hand. Yeah, but you know what? I think, too, like early on... And I think that you and I were kind of victims of that, this mentality as well, where sort of, you know, the way that women communicate and, you know, maybe, I mean, I'm generalizing for sure, but usually, you know, a little bit more verbose and um, a little bit more um, wanting to talk about sort of the emotional level of things and stuff. And I think that there was a lot of like having you stretch into my way of communication and very little of me stretching into your way of communication. It's sort of like this idea that women are more evolved because we have a different type of communication style than men and men um, maybe it, it, that doesn't come as naturally. And so it's like this push or pull more than a push, I guess, to have you meet me on, to have had you meet me on that level rather than me also accommodating the way that you communicate. Uh, um, and I think that's really changed for us in the last, I don't know, 10 years or so is, is I think I became aware that hey, why am, you know, why is it always in this dance that you're sort of trying to meet me on that level? And I did very little of that for you, I think. Yeah, and I'd probably take that one step further and say not only was it different ways of communicating, but it's also different ways of thinking between masculine and feminine. And I think recognizing and accepting that we both think through things excuse me in a different way Uh, and after thinking it through we communicate it in a different way and I think really accepting and eventually learning to love that difference between the two of us rather than expecting both of us to evolve into one I think it's recognizing that we're absolutely interconnected but different yeah and and with that I think acknowledgement of differences is also a deeper appreciation for the differences. Like, I mean, I've always appreciated the things that you brought to our relationship and that you could do or that your strengths and your interests and all those sorts of things. But I think that in, you know, identifying that these were things to that enriched our relationship, not things that, you know, um, I don't know, made one person better than the other person, or it was nothing to compete with. It was just something that developed our relationship in a more meaningful and deep way. And, you know, I think at first there was, and I think too, just because of my, um, you know, I was in the military for seven years, you were 25 years, but 
Um, I really, and I think too, being raised by a, a single mom and sort of in the seventies and then the eighties and this real sort of rampant ideas around feminism, I sort of came into our relationship with this very strong idea that I had to be able to do everything that you could do or, you know, I, or that a man could do and that, um, independence was actually, um, a trait that if I didn't, if I couldn't be independent, then, you know, who, who was I, what was I, a failure, you know, I, it was something to be ashamed of if you weren't independent. And, um, and so there was always this feeling like within me that I had to rise up and, and be like a guy in ways that weren't actually true to me I mean I I think everybody has masculine feminine traits and I mean I I can I'm strong and I do there's a lot of things that I do that could be labeled either way but I think that it was when I was able to let go of a lot of that um, that idea that I had to have these traits that weren't inherently my own actually and it you know I got to know myself better and the more I started acting out of who I was as a person instead of maybe what I was taught to believe I needed to act or how I needed to act so that I was of value um I don't know I just I found that really um created space in our relationship for us both to be able to do that like you know you weren't you're not here as an accessory to lift up and gild your woman you're a man with you know equal value we're of equal value but we're different no for sure and I think trusting each other to grow into what you believe to be true um, because when you said that uh, in the early days you felt like you had to do it all um I don't think in the early days, I'd probably venture to say you trusted me to take on that role for the family to do what I believed uh, was true, and that would be to provide, protect, and create an environment for our family to thrive. And I think when we came to the point where you trusted me and I actually followed through with doing the actions uh, to show you that I could take on that load and that was me leading our family in that direction and uh, taking the responsibility for it and owning it as a male or a more masculine role, I think that we started to become more connected uh, because we recognized that by showing strength but also by showing vulnerability and weakness and trusting each other that we could work through problems because of our strengths and because of our weaknesses but doing it together as a team um, connected was the best way forward rather than one person trying to do it all and not trusting the other individual or trusting the partner to do their side of the bargain because mm-hmm. um, trust what does that mean to you when you say trust you to to do those things to provide and protect and to create that environment what does that mean 
just knowing it's knowing that there are responsibilities that I embrace, that I own, and you can trust me to do them always. Mm-hmm. And that's important to you? Oh, absolutely. It's fundamental to who I am as a man, fundamental to who I am as a father and a husband. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. It's hardwired into me. Mm. And I think that's an essential statement too. Like I do believe it is hardwired. And I think going back into the early days when I don't, well, I have to say the early days for us were complicated a bit too, just because of me being in the military. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because you really had to step forward and do it all absolutely when I would leave for a week, a month, six months at a time. And so you had to be everything when I was gone. You were the backbone. You were the strength. You were the solid pillar. And those were hard times too when I would come back from wherever and swoop back into the family environment and try to pick up where I left off when you had to build a shield around you to survive. And then me trying to navigate back into your life, navigate back into our family's life and take on my role. So I would say that really complicated our early days as well because that was us learning how to be a military family and be a strong, functioning, healthy military family yeah I found that that was really hard because like I said because of my upbringing and then my background and then being in that scenario and I could see when you would come back home that you did just want to you know you missed us and it was hard where you were gone and you just wanted to come back and and to reclaim your family and so it was always sort of a bit of a dance because when you were gone I had to step up and step in to all those things I had to be mom and dad and I had to take care of everything and then yeah when you walked in the door I had to back that up and it's it's a little bit discombobulating because and and probably because of how much you you go and come back too that we could never quite catch our rhythm no I think that's totally true yeah yeah but um so I guess now, like, how do you think now that um, our ways of dealing with conflict, like, well, I guess I should ask, like, do you think we deal well with conflict now? Yeah, I think we do a lot better. And I think we've evolved to a point when we have a healthy relationship with conflict, a healthy relationship with um, challenges that we face more both coming at it from different perspectives. Um, But I have to say, too, that it's constantly evolving. Like, we're not the same people today that we were one year ago through experiences, through life lived, um, through time. And so I think we're continuing to evolve with how we approach conflict. And to be very frank, I'm proud of where we are today. I think we've, um, this has been an incredibly challenging last year. And I think from my own personal perspective, I think despite the worst tragedy ever, I think we're that much closer. And I think the challenges that we faced along the way, um, we were able to sit together, do our dance together, um, 
be vulnerable together, which I think is such a key thing for you and I in terms of us being more connected um, and also letting each other be who we are in moments of crisis, but knowing that we have each other's back forever and always. Yeah, I think that's like a really big thing. I think before when there was conflict between us, it often felt, especially like early on, it almost felt catastrophic. Like like um, it was so overblown, you know, in the sense that I thought, well, are we even meant to be together? Like, is this it? Is this the end? Like, is this solvable? Um, you know, I had really no reference point to say, oh, no, I saw, you know, this elderly couple I know went through this. And, you know, we don't talk about these things at all. It's just such a shame. Like, we just leave people to have at it. And our culture now says, you know, that when things get tough, it's not meant to be and you should move on as if marriage is no longer even sacred. And I, I think like, for me now when we have conflict um i there's no longer this um feeling like this could be the deal breaker like this is this is it's not catastrophic it's actually everything is solvable and it will be solved it's there's more of a trust in our ability to figure it out doesn't mean things i'm never frustrated or you're not frustrated or whatever it's just that over time and and with experience and with um you know having vulnerable discussions when we're not in the heat of the moment like I have this sense of like I know you and I know what your life is and I know you know how how much you've gone through and are even going through and I feel such a sense of protection around you. Like, I, why, I, I want your life to be good. You know, I love you so much. I want your life to be good. And I can do something about that. And, and um, how I handle myself in those moments is, is just part of that. You know, I can't be careless with my words. I can't be careless with your feelings because that's, something for me to protect I feel like yeah and I feel exactly exactly the same way um no it's it's truly like my life for yours where my words the way I interact with you my love for you is just pure sacredness and that can never be violated and therefore my actions have to marry up with that constantly and uh, and i think that's where um i think over the years we've evolved in terms of even our reflective practices in terms of thinking back through problems difficulties coming back to problems uh and talking about maybe not the problem itself but more about the structure about how we work through problems mm-hmm because I think we have that fundamental trust and the fundamental vow to each other that our relationship is bigger than all this. A problem is a problem, uh, but it is a very temporary thing where our relationship is forever. Mm-hmm. I think too, like as time has gone on, like, you know, let's say there's like, uh, 
I'm just thinking back to one example, but um, I was, I remember like a few years ago, I was getting frustrated with you with sort of your work schedule and then you just sort of dropping things on me at the last minute and me not realizing, oh, wow, he's working a night shift tonight or, or whatever, just because, you know, you get involved with doing your stuff and you were running some courses at that time and everything. And so, <clears throat> um, you know, we talked about that and, um, yes, there's like definitely, you know, a time to talk about it, but then there's also, well, like, what can we build into our relationship to not have this keep happening? And instead of just leaving that entirely on you, like you need to remember to tell me we sat down and we came up with the idea of doing our books together. So Mm -hmm. like once a week or once every two weeks or whatever, we sit down and we do we we use bullet journals and we sit down and we like line up our bullet journals together and then if you have something come up in between that you tell me about it and I add it into my journal so there it's not like it's not like a a problem comes from one person and that person is responsible solely to solve it it's like what can you do together um you know, to solve problems, because I think ultimately, too, like, that's just one little example, but that's how we do everything. And it it just makes us stronger. And um, to be able to solve things together is, you know, who cares who's at fault? I think that's another big thing is like, this sense of frustration, when people get frustrated or angry, the first thing they want to do is like, figure out who's to blame for it. And, um, you know, sometimes who's to blame is pretty obvious, but to find the solution together, despite the fact, I mean, that it calls for some humility, but it really is the stuff that adds mortar to your relationship. I think so. Yeah. And I love that word in there, humility. I think that comes up for us so often. And I think it's a, it's a key lesson throughout life. Uh, there's definitive strength and humility. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a surrendering to each other and, again, recognizing the strengths, acknowledging the weaknesses and combining that to uh, the best unity of two. Yeah. I mean, if, if your relationship starts becoming a competition for who's right, uh, you're operating as individuals. It's, you should have compassion for someone even when they you think they're in the wrong. I mean, just let that go, let it go, and just work together to find the solutions. Yeah, and always reaching out with love. Like, uh, so I think love will trump all the anger, <laughs> frustration. Uh, that comes with the typically emotions surrounding complex problems. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you think we've said what we want to say? Well, you didn't know what we were going to talk about. I didn't. <laughs> you coaxed me into it again. You so. like it when I throw these things at you, right? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. I'll think about that one. Um, <laughs> okay, so we'll leave it there. Um, but I thought maybe... Um, So a friend of mine reached out to me earlier this week and she had a good question. And I said, you know what? I think I'll build that into our little TNT talk on Saturday. And that way more than one person could hear about it. Um, But so, you know, there's some people out there. I don't know who these nutty people are, but they're preparing for the end of the world. Really? (laughs) Yeah. Isn't that funny? Yeah. (laughs) Anyway. 
Um, and so she was asking me, this is a good question. So she has two little girls and, you know, she's just making sure that she's got good supplies in the house. And one of the things she wanted to do is have like a first aid sort of emergency kit um, at home. And I thought seeing you're an ER physician, you might know something about that. Um, and so I was wondering if you maybe could sort of pick through your brain. I should have let you write yourself a list before we had this discussion, but we'll just throw you on the spot. And if you forget anything, you can tell me after the fact, and I'll add it in the notes part of this, if you feel like you forget anything. Okay. Okay. So, but, so if you were going to give this mama some advice about building a little first aid ER kit for her daughters, she lives, I think somewhere in South America, uh, Okay, doesn't matter. But what would what would be in that kit? All right, I love this question. I can't tell you how often my brain goes to these little rabbit holes. Oh, I could tell people how often. <laughs> Maybe we shouldn't tell them about my go bag in the car, the one oh. in the garage, or the one for going to the field. But anyways, um, so I'll speak to this actually from like, a, I guess, a Western ER uh, perspective uh, that's combining both elements of emergency medicine as well as tactical medicine, which are my uh, specialties. But when it comes to a bit of a, an emergency medical kits uh, targeted towards kids, I have to say it wouldn't vary much from that with which you would create for adults with maybe some slight variations. Um, but common things being common, I think the first thing I would speak to is just wound care. I think wound care is so, so important. Everybody's gonna get cuts, scrapes, uh, lacerations, wounds. Um, so I think that'd be a key component to have inside your kit. And that would include everything from a little bottle of uh, chlorhexidine, uh, a little tube of uh, uh, polysporin, uh, really good band-aids like the elastoplast, uh, they're cloth ones that mm-hmm. uh, are shaped like uh, little butterflies. They go around knuckles, over knees, they can be uh, manipulated to go around the tips of fingers. And then some like 4 by 4 cotton um, pads. Uh, and then also some uh, some tape, just so again, depending on where the cuts are, you can properly clean, dress, wrap, and tend to those wounds because I think the small things become big things in more austere environments. So a really good wound care kit. I know there is talk out there about like should people learn how to suture? Um, and I think that's probably not something you'd have in your first aid kit. I think a lot more expedient way to do that in a more austere environment would be through the use of like uh, medical staples that you can actually buy like a little staple gun purposely meant to uh, pull together larger lacerations. And then on that point too, if they were small cuts, you could actually also use uh, skin glue. So I'd probably also have that as part of my wound care little kit. Wait a minute, you can buy a staple gun for skin? Mm-hmm. Okay, but... Okay, let's say a kid mm-hmm. got a big gouge in their calf, right? Yep. And, um, well, first of all, so how big would it have to be to 
Is it how wide it splits open or how? Yeah, whether it's gaping, like if it's well approximated and not gaping, you could probably just use skin glue. But if it's starting to pull apart and looks like it won't heal properly, and this is again all under the assumption that you're don't have access or don't have immediate access to medical care and you're looking for more of an improvised, I shouldn't even say improvised, a good way to care for wounds. Yeah, if you don't have access to the ER. Yeah, if you have access to the ER, again, if somebody has a laceration that's gaping, please do go in and uh, get yes. it taken care of properly. Okay, but just, so if that was the case, okay, there's no access and, they're, and it is a gaping wound and they're going to use like this, um, what about those steri strips? They're not as good? Um no, not not for bigger wounds. Oh, okay, yeah. so if they're gonna use, let's say, the staple, is there what would be? I know you have like a topical. Um, what do you call that? So that it numbs it. I can't think of that yeah, word. Yeah, so, so there's a. It's called let gel, um, but That's it's let uh, let l e t um, is one variation of it. Uh, you can actually also buy skin freezing spray i sometimes see it like at ear piercing salons uh, sometimes we use it for like uh, kids before we start ivs but it's basically just a freezing numbing spray that you can spray onto the skin before you would do anything mm. but i'd also have to say too that when a laceration first happens uh, the area is numb so the quicker you can actually repair something after it's been cut mm. open, uh, typically you don't even need freezing. And uh, my daughter and I actually experimented with that a few years back when I had a self or I had a, an axe cut on my hand. And uh, I, her and I sutured my hand together within the first 20 minutes afterwards because I was curious to see if that was actually a true fact or if it was an old wives' tale. And it was true. Like there was no pain. So Really? Yeah, it was just numb. Oh, hmm. okay. Go on with your list. All right. So after, I guess, that wound management piece, I think the second thing is bleeding control. Um, so the best thing for bleeding is always pressure, pressure, pressure. Um, but after that would be something like a, an Israeli bandage, which is like a, it's a form of a, a pressure point dressing that you can use to stem the flow of blood. Um, <clears throat> another thing that I'd put in there would be a, a tourniquet or two um, because and to know absolutely how to apply a tourniquet because depending on uh, the type of injury inflicted if you have a if you're trying to achieve hemorrhage control on a limb or an extremity uh, tourniquets are truly life-saving devices that can be uh, applied by anyone uh, once they've received some training so those would be the two things I'd put in there for uh, bleeding or hemorrhage and, control. And be, sorry to interrupt you, but just um, for tourniquets, there are children-sized tourniquets, right? Because we're talking about children here. So, yeah, there's tourniquets that are children-sized, but even your common like it's uh, a great question, and uh, I'm just questioning my knowledge on this. Because uh, I've never actually applied one on to anyone less than ten, but I know even like your common cat tourniquet, um, it just the it, it's a sliding Velcro strap that you can make as small as possible. Okay. Um, so I don't. So yeah. So so it'd be I think something to look at when you buy it. But then I think again. your common tourniquet can be applied to uh, most ages. And like I know you and I just had this discussion maybe a month ago or so where I was. Um, talking to you I think I had shown on Instagram one of your go bags and someone had said something to me about tourniquets and I was asking you because um, I, I I mean I, I don't 
I remember learning like basic first aid in the military and a tourniquet was basically a piece of gauze you tied as tight as you could and you were just saying that that's really outdated information now yeah because the the, the new uh tourniquets have all been developed and refined through combat environments and uh they're commonly designed now where you actually have a windlass that you actually cinch and turn into place and they have a a locking device that goes on top of it so you're actually stemming not only venous but absolutely arterial uh blood flow and that's what you want to stop if there's a if there's a hemorrhage is the arterial blood flow and that requires typically an extreme amount of pressure that you can only achieve through a properly designed tourniquet and just know too there are a lot of counterfeit tourniquets on the market so make sure that you don't um uh go for something very cheap because it's likely a knockoff and actually pay uh, the extra for a life-saving device that has been made and had quality control done on it. They have counterfeit tourniquets. Absolutely. And it'd be an absolute shame if you're trying to do a life-saving intervention <laughs> and you're putting on a falsely made tourniquet. That just is be... horrible. Yeah, it is. Oh, so how would people know that they're getting a legit tourniquet? Just go through uh, known companies mm. like North American Rescue, uh, Um They have, yeah, just go through a reputable source for tourniquets. Mm-hmm. Okay, so wound care, tourniquets, what yes. next? So I'd probably also say uh, just a very basic uh, splint so that because, uh, again, bone fractures uh, or fractured bones, broken legs, uh, and just kind of splints uh, a limb into anatomic alignment. Uh, it can provide a lot of comfort while the individual is being transported to uh, more definitive care. So just a moldable splint and also the wrap required to keep it in place. And off the top of my head, probably the last thing that I would include in a kit as well would be for other common emergencies that you may encounter, and that'd be anaphylaxis. So for anaphylaxis, uh, if you have kids, just making sure that you have something like an EpiPen Junior that has the appropriate epinephrine dose to give intramuscularly for anaphylaxis. I would also add into that, um, you might need a script in order to get it, but uh, just a Ventolin inhaler, uh, because if you have kids um, and they're older than two years old, they can have a, a first manifestation of asthma or wheezing, not otherwise diagnosed, <laughs> and uh, just the Ventolin's a bronchodilator that can uh, be very immediate in terms of benefits. And some medications I would throw into this kit too would just be common things just so it's very easily accessible and that would be uh, just your Tylenol, uh, your ibuprofen, uh, your Benadryl uh, as an antihistamine, maybe some reactant for longer acting antihistamine. Is there any antihistamine you can get that's not a pill? Like if someone was having a serious reaction to something, like would that is there something that you could do? Yeah, so if somebody's coming in with like a, like a skill, like hives alone with no known cause, we would typically just give Benadryl or mm-hmm. Reactin and just give it time. Mm-hmm. Um, 
we only start giving epinephrine uh, if it's truly an anaphylactic allergy and that's involvement of two or more systems. Mm. You know. yeah. So would that, so would that be ba- the basic kit then that you would? Um, just thinking through kind of what I had said, I think that would probably be the basic kits. There's not too many components to it, but it'd just be making sure that you're prepared. And then in terms of skill sets within that would just be a good knowledge of just wound care, um, hemorrhage control, um, yeah, um, and also knowing when you're out of your comfort zone and knowing when to seek help. Uh, if you don't have skill sets, knowing just uh, as part of your emergency kit would be having numbers in there for a neighbor, a friend in your area, what you use to call like your emergency medical services. Uh, and also making sure that your kids are intimately familiar with where those numbers are as well. Um, so that's if you're on the road and you have this kit with you, if you're at home uh, and something happens to you, uh, maybe not your kids, your kids know where to go to grab this bag. They can bring it to your side and they can very easily access the numbers and make uh, whatever calls are necessary to get help. Because I think that lifeline is absolutely essential. Mm-hmm. Is there, would there be much of a difference between um, that as a first aid kit and one for adults? I mean, obviously the sizes or dosages are different, but because how come your bag has stuff for like shotgun blasts and stuff or like that powder stuff that you put? Yours is a little excessive. So my bag is targeted and designed, I guess, from a, a tactical medicine perspective. Yeah. Um, so I have... Yours is like a, a shit hits the fan kind of bag. Yeah, but I don't... Yeah, so that's a bit different. Cause I think a lot of the stuff I have in there would be... Because it's my background, because I deliver that training on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. I also have like uh, chest seals and like uh, hemostatic agents and also other ways to achieve um uh just airway control with nasal trumpets and so anyways that's because that's within my um expertise and also within my scope of practice so i have additional things to even do things like a cricothyroidomy which is not something that i would advocate to (laughs) anybody that has not been trained so yes my kid is definitely more comprehensive okay okay so that but that but as far as like just having sort of that those things around that you know should something god forbid come up then those are that kit would give you what you needed until you could get to the hospital basically yeah for sure and i think with that kit is just going through with your kids too just in terms of common scenarios in Mm. terms of like the recovery position if somebody's vomiting to turn them onto their side or Mm -hmm. if somebody's not properly breathing uh different things that they can do and so just go through common scenarios with your kids because i think knowledge is very powerful and Mm. to try to shield your kids from yeah from any of this i think is doing them a disservice and seek out uh, again like a basic cpr course because i think it's fundamentally important something that should be taught to all kids as soon as they're able to learn that knowledge and i don't no idea why it's not part of our school system and why it's not reviewed on a yearly basis because those are the skill sets that our kids need and our world would be better if we were more aware of 
emergency situations like that and also how to better take care of our bodies that's Mm -hmm. a topic for another day yeah yeah and maybe on another talk if people want to hear about it we could also just talk about the things we do like the medicines and stuff we use which are um plant medicines and like um things that we do to keep us healthy the preventative stuff because we sort of have like our first aid plant medicines kit too i mean that's not for trauma there's trauma but then there's also health and and the two are divided actually so i mean you're brilliant at what you do but on the day-to-day it's sort of the plant medicines and the natural medicines and therapies that um keep us healthy so yeah we'll maybe speak about that another time if people want to hear about that but i think this has gone long enough thank you for coming back here i know how much you love it (laughs) all right bye everyone